Thank you all for being here at River Oaks today on this Palm Sunday. We are really, really glad to have you here with us. Um, if you got a bulletin, worship guide on the way in at the door, would you look at that just for a moment? There are just a few things I'd like to note. The tear-off strip on the end that says, hey, I'm here. We always appreciate it if you fill that out. Uh, the baskets will not be passed down the rows today because we're having communion later in the service, but if you can just drop these in the basket when you leave, the ushers will have them. Uh, whether it's your first time or you're here every week, we love to get these uh, to know that you are here. A couple other things I'd ask you to note, if you look at the middle panel of your bulletin on the inside, um, the upcoming training for Forsyth Jail and Prison Ministry, we love to get people involved in that, and uh, you've got to go through this training once a year to be able to participate. Uh, secondly, the YMCA New Canaan Society Prayer Breakfast uh, coming up in just a couple of weeks. And then finally, the monthly contributions. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Our fiscal year ends March 31, so we've just begun a new fiscal year. And we were pretty concerned that the uh, Beyond Initiative, the campaign we had in the fall, might affect our general fund giving uh, negatively. And you can probably uh, figure it out there. We came in remarkably close to our budget needs. And I just thank you, not only for your Beyond pledges, but for your giving to our general fund that enables us to support everything we do and support all of our missionaries. Thank you for that. And then at the top panel, you'll see uh, some things happening this week in advance of Easter. And the first of those is the uh, Monday Thursday service that you'll see there uh, in green. The word Monday comes from a Latin word for mandate or command, and it's a reference to Jesus' love command when he told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And Christian churches have traditionally celebrated this with a Thursday service prior to Easter Sunday. And we'll be in the gym for that. Uh, Brett Canote on our staff is able to create a wonderful environment there for a unique type of worship service. Uh, it lasts about an hour, child care is available. Then the next day, Good Friday, uh, same location, we will have prayer, no child care at that time, but you can drop in or out for as little or, or much as you'd like. On Easter Sunday then, we will have three services. We're adding an 8 o'clock service. I want to say thank you again because you all have signed up for taking care of staffing Noah's Ark and all these areas in our church, and that has shaped up beautifully, and I thank you for being willing to volunteer there. It would help if uh, some of you came at 8 o'clock, but would be a, a particularly great help if lots of you would park at West Forsyth High School next Sunday. We uh, run out of parking before we run out of seating here, and we anticipate far more people than usual at this service. So think about parking at West, having a little prayer walk over here Sunday morning, just getting preparing yourself spiritually to worship the Lord on Easter Sunday. That would be an immense help if you would park there. We got permission from the high school to park there. Appreciate it a lot if you do that. And then finally, we have some little plastic invitation cards on the name tag tables. And uh, I want to encourage you to pick one up if you've got neighbors, friends, co-workers who don't go to church anywhere. Easter Sunday is the easiest time of the year to invite a guest to come to church on a Sunday morning. So think and pray about who you might invite to come with you. Finally, we will, as I mentioned a moment ago, have a communion, the Lord's Supper this morning. 
As is our custom here when we have the Lord's Supper, we'll invite you, if you have a need for prayer, after you've been served the communion elements, just to make your way to one of the front rows. We have people here to pray for you. You may have come in with something weighing on you, a need for yourself or a loved one, uh, some issue you'd just like somebody to pray with you about, and uh, we'd like to have the opportunity to pray with you about that today. When it comes to this time of year, you often hear people calling this week Passion Week, beginning with Palm Sunday. The palms come from the palm branches laid before Jesus as he made his way into Jerusalem. The word passion comes from a Latin word that means suffering or enduring. Uh, and as I mentioned a moment ago, the word mandi comes from uh, the word for command. Today, we're going to be looking at the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, uh, and why he suffered, uh, why Jesus had to suffer on the cross, and what we can learn from that. What does it teach us? So I want to address the question briefly this morning, what does the suffering of Jesus Christ teach us? I believe there are four significant things the suffering of Jesus teaches us, and I'd like to consider those this morning. The first is simply this. The suffering of Jesus on the cross teaches us that sin is costly, incredibly costly. When God first created humanity, Adam and Eve, he put them in the Garden of Eden. He told them they could eat of any fruit of any tree in the garden. He said, but in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what shall happen? You will surely die. Consequences of sin were death, spiritual death, separation from God. Later, the prophet Ezekiel would say, the soul who sins shall die. The apostle Paul would say in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In our world, in our time, and even in the church, I think we generally take sin a bit too lightly. And one of the reasons we do, I think, is because when we think of our own standing before God, our goodness in His eyes, our eternal well-being with God, we tend to think of ourselves in comparison with other people. And we think, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not nearly as bad as she is. Or I've got my faults, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm nothing like he is. And we hear news reports of horrific things done in our world, and we, we compare pretty favorably to those people. But nowhere in the Bible does God ever suggest that our eternal status before him is based upon comparison with other human beings, but rather is seen in light of his own glory. That's why the Apostle Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, in our Old Testament as we read it, one of the best known prophets was the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah probably lived 740 years before Christ. As we read the book of Isaiah, we, we can tell he lived in a time that was dark spiritually, and he was arguably the most holy, certainly one of the most holy people of his day. And yet, we read a remarkable story about Isaiah. 
It's recorded in Isaiah chapter 6. The passage there begins, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. So Isaiah actually sees the Lord in this vision. He sees the angels there. And the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah gets to glimpse this. He says, The foundations of the threshold shook at his very voice. And then Isaiah says something. What does he say? Does he say, Wow, I get this most awesome vision. God chose me to have it. Now, here's what the holy man, arguably the holy man of his day, says when he gets a glimpse of the glory of God. Here's what he says. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So an angel comes to him with a burning coal, touches his mouth, and he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Here's the point. The prophet Isaiah needed his guilt to be taken away, his sin to be atoned for. In light of the glory of God, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short. And the immense suffering of Jesus on the cross, the fact that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would become a human being and allow himself to be spit upon, mocked, brutally beaten, nailed to a cross, and bear the weight of our sin, surely points out the costliness of sin in the eyes of God. But secondly, the suffering of Jesus teaches us that God's love is unfathomable. As I was thinking this week about an appropriate word to describe the love of God, I thought of the word remarkable, but that's not strong enough. As I've seen the construction going on, I'm tempted to say, wow, it's remarkable what they got done this week. You know, put up all these steel beams thought about the word extraordinary, but God's love is more than extraordinary. But the word unfathomable means incapable of being fully explained or understood. When it's used in regard to, to a depth of water, it sometimes means impossible to measure the extent of. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It's beyond our ability to grasp or understand. And the cross of Jesus, the immense suffering of Jesus, the lengths to which God went to bring us out of our sin, to atone for our sin and remove our guilt, is really beyond fathoming or knowing. Maybe you've heard this question before. I've heard it before. I've been asked this. Perhaps you have as well. Why did God create human beings and tell us not to sin if he already knew we were going to sin? I mean, why did he tell Adam and Eve not to eat of a forbidden fruit? And he already knew that they were going to do it because God knows everything. He knows what's going to happen. Doesn't that seem illogical? God would say, don't, don't sin. And then, you know, he'd create us knowing we're going to sin. Why is that? Well, my, my answer, first of all, is I don't know. <laughs> to many questions like that, that's my answer. I don't know. But perhaps, perhaps it has something to do with the fact that the greatest thing that you and I can ever know, 
the greatest thing we can ever possess is the love of God. To know the love of God and the love of God for you is the greatest thing any human being can have, can ever have. And perhaps, perhaps, because we have sinned, and our Creator God went to such unbelievable depths to redeem us from our sin and bring us to Himself, perhaps because of that, we can know and experience His love to a greater degree than if we had never sinned. Perhaps our capacity to love God is greater because of what He did to redeem us from our sin than it would have been had we never sinned. I don't know. I don't know. But I know this. The suffering of Jesus teaches us that God went to the farthest possible extent to redeem us from our sin and bring us to himself. The suffering of Jesus teaches us that sin is costly, but God's love is unfathomable. It teaches us a third thing. And I believe it's this. The suffering of Jesus teaches us that God's word can be trusted. The Bible is a book of predictions. It's a book of prophecies. Very specific prophecies. Many of them, dozens of them. Prophecies about nations and about kingdoms and specific prophecies about the Messiah who would come given hundreds of years before he did come. Now in the passage that Maddie read for us just a moment ago from Matthew chapter 27, we're given specific detail about how Jesus suffered, about his crucifixion. These details were written in a psalm composed by King David approximately 1,000 years before the coming of Christ. On the screen, you'll see a comparison of some verses. On the right, you'll see the description of Jesus' suffering and passion, his crucifixion, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. No one, when Jesus came, it seemed, expected the Messiah to suffer like this. But King David, in composing Psalm 22, writes these words. You wonder what they're about if you don't know the whole story, if you don't know what happened to Jesus in the New Testament. When he says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Is David talking about himself? That's what we would assume if we read that passage before the coming of Jesus. But then when Jesus is on the cross in Matthew 27, verses 41 to 43, we see that he is mocked. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders mocked him, saying he saved others he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. So he says, let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him. The very words from Psalm 22. What about the crucifixion? David writes, dogs encompass me. In Jesus' time, that was a derogatory term for Gentiles, dogs, non-believers. They pierce my hands and my feet. 
Well, Roman crucifixion was not known in the time of David. The Bible says they crucified Jesus. David goes on to write in the psalm, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Matthew tells us after they crucified Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. David begins Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And Jesus, laid in the description of his suffering on the cross, says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scripture, the Bible, was not written by a bunch of disciples who wanted to try to prop up the Christian faith and say it's the real thing. Scholars know enough to know that our Old Testament was dated well before the coming of Jesus Christ. The remarkable thing about the Bible, and it, it really sets it apart from other religious books. The, the, the Bible was not composed by one person who had a, a vision from God or one person who was given uh, golden plates to transcribe or something like that. The Bible was written over a period of approximately 1,400 years. Old and New Testament, 66 books, written by different people in different regions from different walks of life over 1,400 years, and yet it fits together like the beautiful pieces of an extraordinary puzzle, which is truly a remarkable thing. The suffering of Jesus shows us that all these prophecies about the suffering of this coming one were true, and God's word is reliable. And then finally, the suffering of Jesus teaches us that God can make something terrible into a tool of redemption. Let me ask you this. How many of you are wearing a cross around your neck today? Are you? You don't be afraid to admit it. It's great to wear a cross. How many of you sometimes wear a cross? All right. That's probably half, half the people in this room. Let me ask you this. Isn't it a little strange to be wearing a symbol of execution around your neck? Would you, you wouldn't wear an image of an electric chair around your neck, would you? I mean, that'd be gruesome. It'd be terrible. Why do you wear a cross around your neck? If you lived in Roman times, in the time of Jesus, to see a cross would likely strike fear into your heart. The images you would associate with a cross would be gruesome, terrible, horrible. But yet, we've got crosses up on our wall in here and on the outside of the building, and rightly so. And you, you wear a cross around your neck. And rightly so, if you understand what it means. Because for us, the cross now is rightly seen as a symbol of hope, a symbol of grace, a symbol of salvation. God took something terrible and made it an instrument of redemption, used it to atone for our sins, demonstrated his love for us, Remove the barrier of sin between us to bring us into relationship with himself. God can make something terrible into a tool of redemption. And he can do that sort of thing in your life and mine. 
David, Paul David Tripp, in his book, New Morning Mercies, writes this. The same God who planned that the worst thing, the crucifixion of Jesus, would be the best thing, our salvation, is your Father. He's the one who did that, if you're a follower of Jesus. And he goes on to write, the hardest things in your life become the sweetest tools of grace in his wise and loving hands. The Apostle Paul said that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I can't imagine how in the world God does that in our lives. But God is the God who redeems. You may be facing something right now, and you cannot see how there is any possible way that God could actually bring something good out of something so bad. But because of the suffering of Jesus, you can rest in the assurance of the words you'll see on the screen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, these bad things, distress, tribulation, persecution, the sword, danger, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The suffering of Jesus teaches us that sin is costly, but God's love is unfathomable. His word is true. It can be trusted. And finally, that God is able to take something as terrible as crucifixion and make it into a tool of redemption. This morning, before we celebrate communion, I want to invite you to join me and uh, a responsive reading um, from the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism, you'll see it on the screen, it is dated to uh, 1562, where Frederick III commissioned the writing of a catechism. A catechism is a teaching tool, uh, and a catechism is often in question-answer form, and it's for teaching children or teaching teachers who would teach other people. And this particular catechism is intended to instruct people, youth and, and teachers, in theology and biblical thought, biblical truth. I think this particular part of this catechism is really beautiful. And it begins with a question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer, and I'll invite you to say it out loud with me if you're comfortable saying it. If not, just reflect upon it and, and see what it's saying because it does teach, I think, biblical truth. So let's, let's do it together. What is your only comfort in life and death? And now together, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ.
He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Beautiful words. Before we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, you'll see on the screen a few verses from Matthew 26. This is part of what took place before Jesus went to the cross. He was gathered with his disciples. They were sharing a meal together. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples after having blessed it and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks for it, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Later we read that the Lord has commanded that this be observed forever until Jesus returns as a way of remembering what he did on the cross, and that's what we're about to do right now. The bread represents his body. The juice represents his blood. And in a moment, the, the bread will be passed and then the juice. And I would invite all of you to participate. You don't have to be a member of our church. If you're not sure you want to, it's fine to just pass it to the person next to, no, to you. Nobody's going to judge you for that. I will say, if you'd like to partake of the Lord's Supper, because of the teaching about the Lord's Supper in the New Testament... I think it's important that you have yourself embraced the salvation of Jesus. That you can genuinely say what the Heidelberg Catechism said a moment ago, that I belong both body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That you can say he has fully paid for all my sins. That you can say his spirit now makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And I think that's what the Bible tells us. We should believe if we are his followers. I'd like to take a moment now and pray. Give us a moment to examine ourselves and um, the Lord to speak to our hearts. And then a moment we will pass the bread and the juice and invite you, if you'd like, to partake of communion. Would you join me as we pray together? Father, this is a holy thing to take the Lord's Supper, communion, and we want to do it in the right way. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would especially help and be speaking to anyone here who has never embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord. That you would give your sense of calling to that person today so that they could know with assurance that you died for them and you're calling them into an eternal saving relationship with yourself. Father, for the rest of us, would you prepare us? Would you show us if there's a sin we need to confess or a person we need to forgive? Prepare us to take this in the right way in your eyes, Lord.
Help us now, we ask.